1: Hello, and welcome to the Prospect Podcast, where the brightest minds discuss the ideas that matter in politics, society, and culture. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect Magazine, and this week we're going to be talking to the American academic Daniel Markovitz of Yale Law School about the so called meritocracy. Is a social system in which people advance not by their class, but purely by dint of their talent ever really possible? And even if it is, is it desirable? Politicians on all sides in both Britain and America certainly think so, but Markovitz parts company with them and believes that the cult of the brightest and best has produced nothing but a rat race which transmits privilege to a staggering degree and exhausts everyone along the way. First, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's own Steve Bloomfield to discuss how far or not Britain is a society where everyone enjoys a fair crack of the whip. Um, Steve, something tells me that you might be in the boat that says that it's not such a society at the moment.
2: It's not, no, and uh, and it never has been, uh, certainly in this country. Um, you've got all sorts of inbuilt privileges in this country for um, for a small number of people. Um, and the rest of the country uh, struggles to keep up. And that has been the case uh, from uh, from very long before it, the idea of social mobility even existed, uh, all the way through those last decades uh, where pretty much every politician until very, very recently would at least talk about the idea of equality of opportunity and levelling the playing field. Uh, and the evidence, is, as you've been uh, analysing in, in the piece you wrote for the, the new issue, is that Uh, it hasn't actually worked.
1: Yeah, it's it's a kind of confusing one. I guess we get muddled up between two different ideas, don't we? Like, one is how much shuffling is there? How many, like, you know, posh kids are going down the social hierarchy as well as poor kids going up, if you like. But another one is just how many people feel like they're moving on and moving ahead. Because, you know, if you've got, like, coal mines closing and wonderful plush offices where there's lots of managerial jobs for people to do then it sort of is possible even without the posh kids going down for lots of people to feel like they're on the up and I guess that's the thing we've lost recently
2: well I think that's the that that that's why the conversation around it has changed recently because you've now got a generation post crash post uh introduction of extortionate tuition fees that uh and post uh housing boom as well um, which is going to be on average worse off than their parents. And that is the first time that's happened in a very, very long time. Uh, and so we had this illusion of progress from generation to generation. We've had not even an illusion, there, there was sort of an average of progress from generation to mm-hmm. generation, which at least then helped to, it helped the rhetoric around this. Like, look, don't worry, things are getting better, things are improving. Um, and we've now had uh, 10 years of stagnant uh, wage growth. Uh, of of a, an economy that clearly hasn't been working for the majority of people, uh, and we've seen this uh, this general average regression, and so that has taken the shine I think off any of the arguments around the idea of social mobility, and we now have two politicians in jeremy corbyn and boris johnson who for very different reasons don't really talk about it much
1: i think that's probably right isn't it i mean it's been very striking on this campaign like it's the first one i can remember where there's not a lot of talk about aspiration and the ladder up um i looked this up the other day the, the phrase about the the ladder of opportunity goes right back to winston churchill so it's kind of been a uh, a staple for a long time but i think they feel a bit like that's not a message you can sell. One of the curious things about the language um, that there's been is that, you know, even people we think of as very right wing, like George W. Bush, who could hardly say he'd arrived in a log cabin to the White House, could he, when his own dad was president as well, would still use this language about no child left behind. And David Cameron, who was our 19th Etonian Prime Minister, we're now on to the 20th Prime Minister from the same school. But Felt relatively unembarrassed about sort of suggesting everyone could have a fair crack of the whip. And I just think that that sense you talked about there, that young people don't think they're ever going to own a home, can't necessarily see a way ahead for themselves to get a secure career, means that this language just isn't cutting it anymore.
2: And I think on the right as well, even when they have been talking about social mobility, there's been this conversation of levelling up. And uh, if anyone has ever criticised the idea of private schools, for example, that's been seen as either the politics of envy um, or you've had David Cameron saying, uh, look, the problem isn't Eton. I want all schools to be like Eton. Mm. And he would talk about the amount of money spent per pupil as if, well, if we can get that up to the same level, then then everything would be all right. Now... Yeah, let's ignore the fact that actually they haven't been able to get up to that level and haven't even tried. But even if you did, the privilege you get from going to a school like Eton isn't just about the amount of money spent on your education. It's about the network. It's about the contacts. It's about the, the self-confidence that you're given. And it's it was remarkable reading uh, David Cameron's uh, recent autobiography. And he described himself as as upper middle class. And yet he also talks about how uh his brother was best mates with prince edward and went for sleepovers at buckingham palace and how he he did a play in prep school and the queen was there in the front row you know that's not upper middle class that you know that that is the uber elite um you know and now even if every school had the same amount of money spent on it as eton you wouldn't have those connections that helps on like david cameron go from uh, from his school swanning off into uh into the jobs that he went into
1: Thanks very much, Steve. I think you've done a good job there of persuading us we're not going to give everyone a fair crack of the whip in Britain. But there's another, maybe more disruptive question, which is whether we should even try. On to our main event to discuss that. In the US, it's sometimes called the American dream. In Britain, it might be the ladder of learning or simply a fair crack of the whip. But the basic idea that hard work... And talent can take you wherever you want to go is an obsession of our time. And there is great moral panic whenever it seems like equality of opportunity is faltering. But is this ideal, the meritocracy, all it's cracked up to be? Not at all, says Daniel Markovitz, the author of a fabulous and provocative new book. I'm delighted to be joined by him now. First, Daniel, uh, definitions. What is this
0: meritocracy and,
1: and where did it come from?
0: Well, first off, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, meritocracy is the idea that people should get ahead based on their own accomplishments rather than, for example, their parents' social class. And it seems like it's common sense. It seems like it's effective. It causes people who have ability to assume positions of influence. And it seems like it's a fair shot of giving everybody a chance to get ahead. But What's actually happened is that meritocracy isn't the leveler that we hold it out to be. It's instead become more nearly what it was initially invented to combat, which is a new kind of aristocracy, only now based on schooling rather than breeding. So this
1: is essentially about qualifications at institutions that are quite hard to get into. Serving as passports to get to certain places. Is that right?
0: Yes, it's about qualifications, and it's also about actual skills I think one thing that's very important to keep separate is Meritocracy on the one hand and equality of opportunity on the other hand. So meritocracy as I just said Arises whenever people get ahead based on their accomplishments Mm. But equality of opportunity requires in a way that everybody has the same chance of getting ahead And because education works and is unequally distributed, when you let people advance based on their accomplishments, but only certain people have the chance to get the education that they need in order to have the accomplishments, then meritocracy itself comes to block opportunity for many people.
1: Now, some of the purveyors of what we used to call the third way, the Bill Clintons and the Tony Blairs, would probably be nodding along with this analysis so far, wouldn't they? They'd be saying, Yes, it's a matter of fairness that everyone gets a fair crack of the whip. Yes, education is very important in that. What we need to do is expand education, particularly maybe in poorer areas, and, and then it'll all be all right. And that's what they would say they try to do.
0: Yeah, so there are two places in which I would depart from that kind of a view. The first place is that The emphasis of those kinds of reforms has been on reducing the gap between the education that the most disadvantaged people get, Mm. however you characterize disadvantage, whether it's race or income or class or gender, and that ordinary or middle income or middle class people get, middle class in the U.S. sense, people in the middle of the society. What's in fact happened in the U.S. in particular, but also if you look at the data increasingly in the U.K., is that the biggest gap that's opened up is between the education that the very rich get, that the elite get, and that middle-class people get. And so that gap, the high-end gap, between the top and the middle, is the biggest and most damaging gap in the society today. And that's not what the third way had focused on. Second quick point is that the third way has this idea that we can have equality of opportunity without having more equality of outcomes. And another place in which I diverge is that I think that idea is just a fantasy. That when outcomes get unequal enough, opportunities become necessarily unequal.
1: We've had, haven't we, for a a time, people have talked about this thing called the Gatsby curve. Your parents are more unequal, then the, the, the chances of the children will be more unequal as well. Do you think that's true? And if it is, is it something that good education
0: reform could ever hope to get around? So I think it is true. And I also think that, properly designed education reform can help with it but in order to get to the reform we need the right theory of the case and the theory of the case that i'm proposing is that elites are investing so much in their children and so distinctively much in their children and the institutions that credential rich children but also that actually train them have become so effective and so intensive that there's simply no way in which a society that allows those institutions to educate that narrow elite can produce anything resembling fairness.
1: So are we really talking here about um, Harvard and Oxford and Yale, I think you'll hear from, um, or are we talking about parents shelling out for 15 pounds for half an hour of extra physics lesson for their 15-year-old
0: Yeah, so it's worth it's worth focusing a little bit on some facts about just how concentrated privilege has become and just how consequential these elite institutions have become. So if we begin at the end in the United States, the top 1% of the income distribution now takes home about 20% of all the income. That's twice as much as it did in 1975. So it's a very narrow elite, but it's incredibly consequential in the overall pattern of income and wealth. Moreover, three quarters of that increase comes from elite labor. So the critical thing that's driving inequality in the United States, and to a lesser degree, but still really very powerfully in the United Kingdom, is the labor income of superordinate workers, of elite workers. So
1: here you're slightly part in company with, for example, Thomas Piketty, who talks it's all inherited wealth and then returns on that wealth.
0: Yes, although one has to be careful here. So the data that I use is Piketty's data, and he and I are in complete agreement up till about 2000. He believes that since 2000, capital has staged a comeback, even in the United States. I think that that view is slightly mistaken because it misallocates income between labor and capital. We can talk about the data details, Mm. um, but there's new work out actually by economists, a guy named Yagan, a guy named Zwick, That largely sides with me, and if readers want, they can go to actually the book's website, which has an essay that outlines the data behind this. In any event, I think Piketty is largely right about the European continent, and the U.S. at the moment and the U.K. to some degree also are outliers, but U.S. and U.K. style inequality are coming to the continent also because elite workers are incredibly good at capturing large incomes is it really about
1: skills and someone being an extraordinarily good I don't know website developer and win the world of the web they can then earn returns all over the world and they needed this elite education to get it or is it like what there's a mood to think at the moment, certainly at the Labour conference where I was just w- was, which is it's, it's, it's about being an insider, about the rigging of the system. You get yourself onto a remuneration committee and you can pay yourself an awful lot for Labour that may or may not be especially productive.
0: Yeah, my view is idiosyncratic on the left, and I think of myself very much as on the left. But it holds that much of this inequality really is due to skills and it's structural. It's not due to individual vices. Let me give you just one data point as an example, and then a story, which is also an example. The data point is that in the US, when private equity firms take a company private, so there's a publicly Mm -hmm. traded company, and it's bought out by effectively one owner, the CEO's pay does not go down. Now, that's revelatory because the story that you just told is that the CEO controls who's on the compensation committee. And because many public owners can't supervise the CEO's pay, the CEO can, in effect, set her own pay mm-hmm. and exploit everybody else. But when the company's taken private, there's only one owner. And that owner has perfect control over what the CEO is paid and private equity people, in my experience, are not charitably inclined. They wouldn't (laughs) pay the CEO any more than it's in their interest to do, and yet they still pay the CEO the same amount. So how could that possibly be rational? Well, what's happened in the US in management is that because unions have been weakened, because middle managers have been ruthlessly cut from corporations, because workplace training has been eliminated, All of the management function has been concentrated in a very narrow executive elite. So there have been structural transformations in the way in which companies are run that mean that an economic function that was once dispersed over many workers who all took a share of the income that it generated is now concentrated in a very small number of workers who capture all the income. So there's a great deal of inequality. It's not good for society. I don't believe it's efficient. I certainly don't believe it's just, but it's not based on private vices or cheating. It's based on structural transformations that favor certain people and exclude others. So
1: if I've got you right, the the economy has been run or has simply evolved in a way that means that power, decision-making is concentrated in fewer hands. And so having a very able person or a well-trained person in that seat of power becomes very important.
0: Exactly. And it's not just power in management. So another example in London, think about black taxis and the knowledge. So uh, as probably most people listening to this know, it used to be you had to study for 18 months to be a cab driver in London. You had to pass a test. Once you passed the test, two things were true. First, you just had to pass You didn't have to have the highest marks. You didn't have to have a university degree. You just had to acquire the knowledge you needed in order to drive a cab. Mm. And second, once you got that knowledge, you could earn a reasonable living as a cabbie. Today, black cabs are being driven out by Uber. Mm -hmm. Uber is run by a very narrow elite of extravagantly trained people who've been at the very top of their classes at the most elite schools and universities in the world. And they have managed to reconstruct how taxicabs work in such a way that all of the skill is theirs and the drivers are totally de-skilled. All they need to do is follow instructions on their apps. And now two things are true. If you're an Uber driver, one, you don't make a living wage that can support a family. And two, there is no way to rise from being an Uber driver to being one of the Uber Ubers who runs the company (laughs) because there's no workplace training, there's no middle management, and you certainly can't afford private schooling for your children. So the old system was one which put mid-skilled, middle-income workers at the center of production. And the new system is one that polarizes work between a narrow, super-skilled elite that's incredibly productive, incredibly highly paid, and de-skilled everybody else that gets paid less. And again, nobody is cheating. It's just unequal and unjust.
1: We want to do something about it then, presumably. Um, Let's just think for a minute about the meritocracy when it arrived and where it came from. That might help to give us a sense of the possible. You've talked about the 70s maybe as a pivot decade in American economic history. Does that have any connection with when the um, meritocracy became entrenched over there? And is Britain different? Of course, we're used to being run by toffs in a slightly different way.
0: Yeah, I mean, the meritocracy actually came to you in some ways very, very early um, with the reform of the Indian Civil Service in 1833 based on achievement and competitive examinations. But the meritocracy really hit Britain in the way in which it really hit the U.S. only in the post-World War II years, when Michael Young wrote his book, when Oxbridge changed quite dramatically. In the U.S., what happened is elite universities, which had previously been really hereditary aristocracies, even in the language the sons of alumni didn't apply to places like Harvard and Yale they put themselves down for mm. attending there was no competition and top professionals top bankers top managers worked very few hours and did not have a lot of capacity
1: george w bush got into some elite college didn't he which yes he did possibly indeed. wouldn't have done w- a which
0: wouldn't uh, wouldn't be possible at all today but then In the 50s and 60s, these institutions self-consciously transformed to break up that old elite by picking people based on ability, effort, talent. And the old elite could be broken up because it lacked the inclination and capacity to train its children. But the new elite that was made in that revolution knows how to train better than it knows anything else and has an almost insatiable appetite for training its children. And so the new elite now, from birth through university, devotes extravagant resources to training its children. Eton costs 40,000 pounds a year. In the U.S., a place like Phillips Exeter costs $50,000 a year and spends $80,000 a year per pupil educating its children, compared to a national average of maybe ten dollars or $15,000 a year. And all of that training means that the kids who get it, and it's rationally delivered to maximize exam results, do the best on tests dominate elite universities, and then dominate the workplace because of their meritocratic training. And so the
1: really difficult question is, what, what, what do we do? You've talked about it. this isn't necessarily about cheating. It's about cultural factors in this elite class, and it's about the way that the economy has evolved. Those are quite hard things, aren't they, for policymakers to do yes. anything about?
0: But if we get the politics right, I think the policies are available. And the policies have to focus on both of the two things you just mentioned, on education on the one hand and on work on the other. Let's start with education. Here is the big debate to go back to what you were talking about with the third way. Is a just education system one that is hierarchical, but in which opportunities are allocated by tests in some meritocratic way so that everyone has a chance to get to the top of the hierarchy or is a just education system one that is less hierarchical? And one way to think about this structurally is to distinguish between excellent education and superior education. Excellent edu- education teaches skills at things that are worth doing well. So like the knowledge that black cabbies used to have, that was excellent taxi driver education. Right. Superior education... Treaches being better than other people at things whether or not they're worth doing And our education system, especially in the US and especially in the UK compared to the European continent Is incredibly hierarchical and emphasizes superiority rather than excellence Mm. So the first thing to do is to dilute the concentration of education at the top by massively massively expanding enrollments not just at elite universities but at elite high schools at elite middle schools at elite primary schools all of these places can easily afford to teach two or three times as many students
1: so 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 we're talking here about Christchurch College Oxford or even Eton College suddenly having to yeah. take a load of twice as many low income people
0: or for that matter Highgate School or St Paul's School mm. or Westminster School or the posh primary school up the road those the schools, state school, even. The, yeah. if, it's, if it, Well, in the UK, probably not the state school because in the UK, state schools don't spend so differently depending on where they are. In the US, the richest state schools spend two or three times as much per pupil per year as middle-class state schools. So they've got the They've resources. got the resources. All of these schools. In the UK, a private school on average spends three times as much as the state system per pupil per year. I'm not in favor of abolishing private education for a variety of legal and moral reasons, but there's no reason why private education ought to be able to be so gold-plated and so elite. And those schools can be forced, if necessary, to teach many, many more students. This would create a much wider elite. It would suppress top wages because there'd be more hyper-educated workers. And it would get to the second point that we haven't talked about yet, which is remaking the economy. When you have a large labor force like that, inventors will come in and find ways of making things and delivering services that can use that labor. And so the new mechanisms of economic production will start favoring middle-income workers again in the way in which the present extremely hierarchical education system causes inventors to invent things like Uber, like securitized finance, that favor super-skilled workers. So the two mechanisms will support each other. And you have
1: some practical thoughts, don't you, about the payroll tax and what we, like national insurance here, for example, is capped at a certain amount, and Social Security in the U.S., Um, I guess you do get into some of those more granular things. The U.S. is
0: so extreme that there are fairly dramatic and easy things to do. In the U.S., for technical reasons associated with the relationship between the income tax and the payroll tax, mid-skilled labor is the highest taxed factor of production. So the tax burden on middle-income workers is higher than the tax burden on super-elite workers. It's higher than the tax burden on capital and robots. And in a world in which the economy is not producing enough middle-income good jobs, that's crazy. And in the UK, the system is less dramatic, but there are lots of ways to favor middle-income economic production. There's industrial policy. There's financial regulation, which would push down on extravagant Derivatives, which need super-skilled people to trade them and elevate mid-skilled local and regional banks. There's IP policy, which favors compulsory licensing in ways that reduces the ability of super-elites to capture enormous incomes by controlling intellectual property. So there are lots of ways to do this. Incidentally, as an aside, the Germans are doing this, and it works. In Germany, new investment in a sector of the economy is associated with reduced income inequality because new investment chases middle-income workers. Whereas in the U.S., it's associated with income dispersion, with greater income inequality, because new investment in the U.S. now chases super-skilled, super-rich workers.
1: Do you think that's policy and regulation, or do you think it's a cultural
0: Well, the two go together. A lot of it is, for example, policy. Uh, I don't know how much your listeners know about German corporate law, but there's a principle called Mitbestimmung, This is the idea that unions have a mandatory number of seats on corporate boards, which prevent corporations from running themselves exclusively to serve shareholders and elite managers. There's also sectoral bargaining, which means that wages are set in a sector even for non-union members, which gives great power to workers. So there are a series of legal devices that could be embraced, which would dramatically reallocate power in the economy. In favor of the middle, and that's what we need. Um, Listening to you there, one thing that strikes me as a challenge of the
1: politics is that in this country, and I think in America as well, um, for a long time the discourse has been around thinking of the voter as the consumer. Uh, And certainly, you know, if you think of something like healthcare, when you go to the doctors or the hospital, you might quite like the idea there'd been a meritocratic (laughs) selection process and um like but you're asking for us to have a kind of flip in the way we look at it and i'm just wondering how do you think that could be a sell at the ballot box where you're saying well we're going to do more through nurse practitioners or whatever and it will be just as good um or do you think people as consumers will hanker for that elite to be looking yeah after i think them? we have
0: to be careful there are some places where the current system is clearly good for consumers but very bad for people understood as workers and citizens. Think about retail, Amazon or Asda. These, these kinds of stores are extremely good for consumers. They deliver massive variety at very low prices. They're terrible for workers because they pay workers virtually nothing. And there I think it's actually starting to happen in the politics that people who are consumers are of course also workers. And they're beginning to realize, yeah. I get this stuff for cheap, but I don't get paid anything. And my life is not better as a result of that balance. It's like the capitalist yep. version. There was an old East German workers slogan, which went, they pretend to pay us, we pretend to work. <laughs> and the capitalist version of this is, they've made our stuff so cheap that they can't afford to pay us enough to buy it. And people are starting to understand that. On other sectors, it's harder, but I think the case is strong. So think about healthcare. Our healthcare system, particularly in the U.S., but also in the U.K., is focused on the delivery of incredibly high-tech medical care by incredibly specialized medical workers. We know how to transplant a human heart. We don't actually know whether it's better for your heart to exercise intensively one day a week, moderately three days a week, or modestly every day. If we knew the answer to that question, it would actually be better for our population heart health Mm. than our ability to transplant a few hearts for the lucky rich few who can get them. And I think we can make that case because it's true that it's, yes, you won't get quite the thrill of seeing the specialist with the Cambridge degree, but over the course of your life, your health will be better. <laughs> and that's important to people. And if if the case can be made on the merits, as it were, I think they'll believe it. Okay.
1: Another part of the politics is around um, trying to get some sort of elite buy-in. Now, you do emphasize at some length in the book this idea that actually the rich are missing out from this system too. i got to ask you, as someone who's written a book on inequality once my, myself, uh, publishers and agents like the idea that the rich are suffering from inequality as well because the people who buy books are
0: educated <laughs> at least. Uh, yes, um, sure. But you're completely sincere in this, are you? I am completely sincere in this. Um, I, I want to be clear. There's a difference between existential suffering and moral political suffering. Moral political suffering is the sort of thing that commands the attention of people who aren't suffering, that gives, for example, the middle income part of the population a reason to care. The suffering of the rich does not give anybody outside the elite any moral or political reason to care. But it does give the elite a reason to care. And there are two components to this suffering. One is just the grind of hours. You know, Uh, In 1962, the American Bar Association said a a lawyer could bill about 1,300 hours a year. Today, a major New York law firm claims its lawyers have to bill 2,400 hours a year. I know lawyers who bill 4,000 hours a year. This is 100 hours a week, every week of your life, and it doesn't let up as you get more senior. That's not a recipe for happiness. Elite managers work longer hours. Elite bankers who used to work banker's hours now work what they call the banker nine to five, which starts at 9 a.m. on one day and ends at 5 a.m. on the next. (laughs) They're exhausted. They're drained. Also, they work at tasks that they don't choose. They train themselves and manage themselves from childhood to adulthood as kind of an asset that they hold as a portfolio manager. Do you think they suddenly retire early? Is this where they get the leisure and the payoff, or do they not even do that? They don't seem to retire terribly early. Many of them don't. And that's because the norms of the system associate honor with busyness. And so they're stuck not just in an economic order, but in an imaginative order that is one that leaves you not flourishing. You know, there's a way in which, if you think about this from a pretty classic Marxist point of view, if you are elite because you own land or factories, your wealth frees you by enabling you to mix it with other people's labor and to extract, exploiting them, some of the surplus. Mm. But if you're elite because you own your own training or your own human capital, the only way to get income out of your wealth is to mix it with your own labor. And then you become a self-exploiter and you become alienated labor. You become wealthy, but you don't become well. And anybody in the current elite who thinks they can have both their extreme income and privilege And their authentic freedom is deluding themselves.
1: I'm going to ask you one final question, uh, because time's against us now. But what buy-in then for this new um, kind of political agenda are you getting from anywhere? I've noticed that in the last month or two, the Labour Party here has been talking explicitly about moving away from equality of opportunity towards something called social Justice might not be quite the same as giving up on the meritocracy. But when you listen to, I guess it would be the Democratic side, probably, but maybe not only them in the US, are any politicians starting to talk in your kind of language?
0: I think both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have some proposals that resemble the kinds of things that I'm talking about. I don't think they yet have the right theory of the case. They're still inclined to tell the traditional story of venal or somehow malfeasant exploitative elites rather than to focus on a structural problem. I think one of the reasons why labor is getting this more nearly right is that there is a long tradition of effectively dispassionate socialist analytical thought in this country, including socialist economic thought, which is exactly the kind of method that needs to be brought to bear to identify structural problems rather than problems involving individual character flaws. And and that's why I think you guys are ahead of us on this front.
1: Well, nice to hear that for once.
0: Daniel Markovitz, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Been a real pleasure to be here.
1: And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Daniel Markovitz. Um, You can read my piece on his new book, along with five others, all about this vexed theme of social mobility in this month's issue of Prospect, which is available on newsstands now. Rebecca Liu is our producer. And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which does help. We'll see you next week and goodbye.